0: Today, we are continuing our series on life in Babylon, Uh, week four of this journey of this series. Week one, we've talked about Josiah and Josiah, King Josiah and the revival that he led in the middle of the Old Testament, uh, towards the end of Judah's reign, year after year after year, generation after generation, had chosen not to worship the Lord, and King Josiah is actually a revival that actually takes place um, where he actually begins the process of removing uh, all the other gods that were being worshipped by, by Judah, by the God's own people. Unfortunately, uh, it just delayed God's judgment on his people and sending them into exile, sending them into captivity, uh, which happened uh, after Josiah's generation, the next two generations, or three generations, I should say, the three kings. And uh, in addition to that, uh, we have Jeremiah that we talked about. In Jeremiah's journey of being a a prophet to God's people, talking about destruction that it was eventually coming. Last week we started the journey of looking to Daniel. And Daniel uh, started, we started Daniel chapter 1 talking about the reality of Daniel choosing not to be discipled by Babylon, showing resilience in the midst of Babylon's pressures to make them Babylon. And just to give you guys an idea as to where Daniel's at at this moment, we looked at this map last week. We're going to take a look at it again this week. They have moved now from Israel up the Fertile Crescent and across to Babylon, present-day Iraq, a 1,600-mile journey. And God's people are here. There's a small, small remnant, mainly probably older um, uh, generation of people that are left in Jerusalem but Jerusalem is in, in, in fire. It's in ruin. And the majority of God's people are in Babylon now. And God is still using his people. And we are continuing this journey of talking about Daniel in Babylon. And just to remind you guys that Babylon, yes, it is a physical place, but it's also an archetype. It's a, it's a picture that we see all throughout scripture since the Beginning of the Bible, the Tower of Babel, clear to Revelation, Babylon is brought up from this idea that it is a culture, it is a people that are set opposite to God. It's a people that are set opposite to God, His agenda, and His purposes. And so we've been going through the journey of asking this question, what does it mean to be in exile? And what does it look like? And we've been using this graphic every single week, taking a look at it. What does it mean to be in exile? Some people say that the response should be separation, and oftentimes that leads to this idea of we need to hate the culture. But we have to wrestle with God's word, and Jeremiah says, I want you to pray for Babylon. I want you to establish roots. I want you to actually seek the welfare of the city, Jeremiah says. The other response is to actually synchronize with culture, to actually affirm some things that are gone. That are done in culture. And yet we can see in Daniel chapter one, Daniel says, No, I'm not going to become Babylon. And so the the two tensions of these that pull us apart in the middle, I think we begin to kind of see what a picture of what it actually looks like to live in Babylon. This next slide, we take a look at the different parts. We're called to be a people that are surrendered, surrendered to God and His will and His ways. We need to live sense, we need to live on mission in the society that we live in. And we have to show a resiliency. We have to be willing to be committed to the things that God wants us to stay committed to. Today we're continuing the journey. We're going to Daniel chapter 3. What's happened now is Daniel and his buddies have all moved into a place of influence in the culture. They're actually being involved in the government now. And there's another story where their resilience is being tested. Daniel chapter 3 We're going to read the whole chapter this morning. You guys ready for the whole chapter? All right, here we go. Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and he set it up on the plan of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials to come to the dedication to the image he had set up satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then their herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, we should bring that instrument back, I think. (laughs) Just so we can say zither, okay? The lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the... I like it. (laughs) Lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And at this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Just side don't. You remember who these three people are. They're the same people that we've been talking about. These are just their what? These are their Babylonian names. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand... And then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed, and he ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and thrown them into the blazing furnace. And so these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. And the king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, your majesty. And he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. And Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them, and they saw that the fire had not been harmed, their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed, their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them and the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. As we dive into the text this morning, one of the things that I want you to notice is what we talked about last week. We talked about how Babylon disciples people, how Babylon has an attempt to, ba- to disciple you to become Babylon, and we talked about some specific things that take place these four things that Babylon does. First thing they do is they isolate you. And as we look at Babylon, we talked about this last week as we look at Babylon what they did with Daniel and 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 walked beside them trying to get them to become Babylon. What we recognize is that this is true for us today as well. The culture wants to isolate you. Wants to remove you from the community, remove you from God's people. And there's nothing that we can really say other than this. You are called to be connected with God's people. Not only does the culture want to isolate you, they begin to start the journey of telling you new and different stories. Number three, change your identity. Change your name. Change who you are, your history, where you've come from, where you're going. Change your identity. And there's a compromise, there's a change in behavior. And today what I want to focus on is we're going to continue that conversation because Babylon is continuing to try and disciple Daniel, and he's doing it today by telling new and different stories. New and different stories. You might be asking the question, how is the Babylonian story different than the God of Yahweh? It's very, very different. The Babylonians believed different things about them, about themselves, about their identity, It was different than what the Jews believed and who they served and who they worshipped. Travis Tyson puts it this way. According to the Babylonian myth, creation was the war between gods. And the fruit of that war were tears of human life. At the bottom of that food chain were human beings who were created to serve the elites. The only people in the Babylonian story who were made in the image of God were the kings and the ruling class. Everyone else were commoners designed to serve those elites. You can imagine what a discouraging cultural narrative there would be when you are in exile in Babylon. You are a slave to an empire where you occupy the lowest class on the planet, lacking even the dignity of being made in God's image. And so their narrative of who they are and what's actually going on is this narrative asking key questions. Where did I come from? Ultimately, you came from war. You are the fallout. Of war, and honestly, because you've lost that battle, or you were born into a certain class, you are now a slave. You actually have no value other than to serve the slave master. What went wrong? Um, nothing. You just weren't born in the right class. You are a losing part of that. Now, if you are a king, then you you are part of the class that won in our fallout of that war. Uh, situation. How do we fix it? It's actually irreparable. There's nothing that you can do unless the king decides to grant you some type of favor. But most likely, you are destined to continue to do what your ancestors have been doing, which is to be a slave. What is my purpose? To serve or to be served. Ultimately, if you're a part of the lower tier, you're called to just be ruled. Depressing? Extremely depressing. Depressing? Even more so, if you are a Jew. God's chosen children that he's invested in and be telling a narrative that is completely different than the Babylonian narrative. What's the the narrative of the Jews? This is the narrative. Where did I come from? I came from creation. That God actually breathed creation into existence. And not only that, of all the different things that God created in Genesis, the, the climax of God's creation is man and woman that you are made in god's image that you are profoundly amazingly made that you are wonderfully made that the, the psalms talk about how you are woven together in your mother's womb the god of creation breathed life into you that you are fearfully and wonderfully made we talked about this in regards to discipling the next generation what are we telling them about who god is and how they made them and i love that my daughter continually is going into her bedroom and writing on her mirror bible passage about how god sees her why is that important because the world is going to say opposite as to who she is bible narrative goes on to talk about what went wrong Uh, every single one of us has been given a choice to either serve god or not serve god and we are not perfect in that That every single one of us, even though we are fearfully and wonderfully made, we are sinners. But here's what's amazing. God does not leave us in our sin, our brokenness. Instead, He comes and actually dies for us. And that you can actually live with Jesus. So what is my purpose? It's restoration that you can actually be a part of a relationship with the God who created you, but in addition to that, he wants to join you in relationship to be on mission to bring restoration and redemption to his world. Just listening to those two stories, very different. Would you agree? So you can imagine the Jews listening and going, that's not who I am. And that's not what I'm called to. Therefore, I choose not To worship this image that you've created because that's not who the true God is. And of all of chapter 3, verse 16, is so powerful. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, We do not need to defend ourselves for for you in this matter. I don't need to defend myself. I'm not going to do what you've asked me to do. If we are thrown in the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty. We're not going to serve your gods or this image of gold that you have set up. We choose to not do what you've asked us to do because it's not who we are. And the story that you're believing is not a part of our story. The resolve that they have to look the king in the face and to choose disobedience, to me, is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. But when you begin to see the narrative that they actually truly believe, we begin to understand the resolve from which they have. You see, the Babylonians were probably telling the Jews, we've conquered your God. In fact, if you remember in Daniel chapter 1, when they went and captured Jerusalem, they took all the artifacts from the temple, and you remember where they put them? Put them in the Babylonian temple to kind of say, well, guess who's in charge now? Guess who's in charge now? Your God's been conquered. You've been defeated. But Daniel is trusting the narrative that my God hasn't been conquered. Instead, my God is with us in spite of the circumstances we find ourselves in. My God is with us in spite of our circumstances. And we see this later on, verse 21. These men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace And the king's command was so urgent that the furnace so hot, the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Fell into. Why? Because they're tied up. King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. This is a picture of what they call a Christophany. Everybody say Christophany this morning. Christophany. It's a picture, an image, of what commentators say is the Spirit of God, the Son of God, Jesus, appearing in human flesh to be with his people in the Old Testament, It is a picture of God coming eventually As the son of God, Jesus To be with his people To rule and to reign He's with them In midst of the circumstances they find themselves in God is still with them And I love the detail that's written down That as they come out of the furnace It says they didn't even smell like smoke or fire You ever gone camping? You come back, no matter where you sit around the campfire, you come, come back smelling like smoke. And so every single time you go camping and you smell like smoke, be reminded of this story where Daniel is thrown into the furnace and he doesn't even smell like fire or smoke as a reminder of God's faithfulness to his people. God is deserving of our complete and sole allegiance to him, whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. Why? Because he created you. Why? Because he loves you. Why? Because he is with you, no matter where you find yourself in life. Live with the conviction that the God of the universe created you, loved you, and is with you. And he is the only one that deserves our allegiance. God. God. Travis Tyson says this as well, Daniel lived with incredible conviction. He was offered power, prestige, and wealth, and he declined while still speaking truth to power. I love that statement, speaking truth to power. He knows from whom his wisdom is derived and has no allegiance to worldly accolades. Not only does a creative minority, his term in his book for exiles, respond externally with an Alternative allegiance, they order their internal lives by it. You catch that? They ordered their internal lives by it. And when I'm reminded of that phrase, it reminds me how oftentimes I can be put into circumstances, situations, and I have internal wrestlings. Anybody Anybody have internal wrestlings about life? about what God's doing, about what he's inviting you into. And these internal wrestlings are things where we maybe don't have a whole lot of peace. Maybe we don't have a whole lot of conviction because we're confused or we're worried. Maybe emotions have gotten the best of us. But I want you to notice what Daniel does is he doesn't allow the internal wrestlings to dictate his allegiance to his God. I think the best case scenario is that Daniel probably had such resolute conviction that he was like, I'm not going to do it. I also know that Daniel is not God. He's also a human being. And there were probably potentially times where he, in the quiet of his room, knew what he had to do in being an allegiant to God, but was crying out to God, God, I know what I have to do. But in this moment, I I am afraid. I am concerned. God, how do I do this? Show me how to do this. Show me how to walk in this way. Whatever it was that Daniel maybe was wrestling with internally, we don't really know, other than at the end of the day, he chose to show allegiance to God, which is a testimony for us in this room. That you are called to allegiance despite the internal wrestlings you have and the circumstances you are in. That the emotions that you have, the different things that you're wrestling with, you are called to still be resolute in that reality of whatever it is that God is calling you to walk out, to be faithful to Him. You are called to show allegiance despite the internal wrestlings you have. How do you do that? How do you do that? Number one, I think you have to be reminded that you live under the kingdom of God and not the power of the system, whatever that is. And it starts back to the narrative. What is your story? Where did you come from? What is your purpose? What is your calling? And not allowing Babylon to dictate the narrative that you have. Instead, it is the reminder that you live under the kingdom of God not the power of the system. Number two, that you're called to live with quiet confidence. I call that hope. A quiet confidence and a humility that God will see you through, whatever that looks like, that God will see you through. It may cost you your life, as we saw with Daniel. But we have to remember that this life is not what we live for. It's the kingdom of God. And are we willing to be resolute in that? Even if we don't lose our life, practically, in the culture that we live in, hopefully for a while now, we can't expect a couple other things. Number three, you can't expect rejection from people who you are in relationship with. If we're gonna be resolute in the things that God wants us to be resolute in, you can't expect rejection. And that fear of rejection can cause us to maybe... Waver, And I just want to tell you, God's with you. It's interesting. Uh, walking beside my kids, I've been talking to you guys a lot about that the last couple weeks. People that me and my family care about. My son's now getting to the point at 13 years old where he has to be resolute in his faith because it's not something that's like oh it's a a child's faith he's now become a young man and it's amazing how many conversations we've had this year as he's in the 7th grade how certain friends certain relationships are changing why? because he's a Christian because he's a Christian and if this is happening for a 13 year old it's going to happen for us Right? And so we shouldn't be necessarily surprised when we experience rejection. We shouldn't be surprised that if you choose to be more honest and authentic and transparent and vulnerable with your faith on social media, that all of a sudden people start unfriending you. And at the end of the day, we have to choose to continue to pursue relationship to continue to choose to be like God who pursues people and loves even if they begin the process of rejecting you because of what you believe. Would you be what Jesus said to his disciples? Would you be willing to be as wise as a serpent but as innocent as a dove? What does that mean? Wise in how we interact with people, how we love people, pursue people, sneaky, Maybe it might even be a good word to put it. Like a serpent, wise. But when we go to interact, to interact like a dove. I just want you to think about that for a second. Wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove. If I look at Daniel, he's wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove. Is he resolute in his conviction? Absolutely, but he's also soft as a dove. last time I remembered... When it comes to doves, I've never heard of attack of the killer doves, right? (laughs) So how do we interact with the culture? Wise? But like soft like a dove. Daniel. Wise? But do you notice the term he uses over and over? Your majesty. Your majesty respectful, kind, resolute. Number four, expect to be misunderstood by people who are in a relationship with you. Expect to be misunderstood because they don't understand where you've come from, what your narrative is, what you believe. You're going to be misunderstood, but I would encourage you to not be surprised, but instead, when people are surprised, this is a great opportunity to lean into the conversation if they're willing this is what we call discipleship conversations about who you are, what you believe, what values you live by in choosing to follow and trust God. And lastly, it's in this place that we can live courageously and fearlessly for God and His kingdom. Live courageously and fearlessly for God and His kingdom. I want to share with you a story as I close out this morning. Just to be a little transparent with you this morning. Uh, Preparing for this sermon series Has been A great journey Because Not only do we have a lot of stuff going on in our culture There's a lot of stuff going on In our our city And even in our community That's difficult to navigate Ministry's been difficult Honestly for, for the last like 18 months I keep calling it COVID fallout Just a lot of heavy things pastorally. And I don't know if this is necessarily good or bad, but it's just something I felt called to lean into in the midst of the national circumstances and the the world circumstances that we find ourselves in. I've been praying a lot. I've been reading a lot. And I've also done something I haven't done in a long time. I've been watching a Netflix show. I've just been watching a lot of shows, documentaries about World War II. And I stumbled upon a story from World War II that's just challenged me, convicted me, about what does it mean to live fear fearlessly and courageously for the kingdom of God. And the story comes from a man named Ernest Gordon. Ernest Gordon was a British Army officer. Captured at sea by the Japanese at the age of 24. He was sent to work on the Burma Siam railway line as a prisoner. And he describes how the prison and the work that was being done, he says it was the worst environment he's ever been a part of. People looking out for their own skin, people constantly making sure that they were protected, not wanting to lose their life, which would make sense in a prison. People were doing whatever they could to survive, even if that meant lying, even if that meant stealing, whatever it meant for them to stay alive, they stayed alive in the midst of fearing losing their life to a Japanese soldier. And he goes on to tell the story that in the midst of that climate, there was a day where the Japanese uh, soldiers counted all the shovels that were being used that day and there was one missing. So they lined up all of the prisoners of the camp, and they started screaming at them, where's the shovel, where's the shovel, you will all die, you will all die. And right when he's about ready to start assassinating all of these prisoners, there was a man that stepped forward and said, I took the shovel. And right there in front of all these prisoners, that man was assassinated right in front of their eyes. Come to find out they had miscounted the shovels. Every single shovel was accounted for and it rocked all the prisoners because this man chose to take on false accusation and die for the rest of the soldiers at that camp. And another man was reminded of that passage in Scripture. What is that passage? That real relationship, real love, is when someone lays their life down for the other. And this is what he had to say about what happened after that. He said, Death was still uh, with us. No doubt about that, but we were slowly being freed from its destructive grip. We were seeing for ourselves the sharp contrast between the forces that made for life and death. Selfishness, hatred, envy, jealousy, greed, self-indulgence, laziness, and pride were anti-life. Love, heroism, self-sacrifice, sympathy, mercy, integrity, and creative faith, on the other hand, were the essence of life, turning mere existence into living its truest sense. These were the gifts of God to men. True, there was hatred, but there was also love. And there was death, but there was also life. God had not left us. He was with us, calling us to live the divine life of fellowship. He goes on to describe how that camp was radically transformed from that moment on. Prisoners began to bury their own dead prisoners began to have as best as they could like bible studies together what had happened in that camp they quit living like babylon and they started to live out the kingdom of god my prayer and my hope as i tell you this story that we in our lifetime would never experience that where we live amen However, living with conviction doesn't happen when we're in the midst of war. It starts right now. And asking this question, what does it look like to bring the kingdom of God into your neighborhood, into your cul-de-sac right now? Not Babylon, the kingdom of God. What does it look like to live out the narrative that God has given you now when you go to work tomorrow morning? and you have a boss who leads like Babylon, how do you honor and yet live with conviction? The practice starts now, church. Not when we find ourselves in Babylon, it starts now. And our ultimate hero is Jesus, who laid his life down with conviction about the truth of who he was and who his father was, but laid his life down for you, for us. What would it look like if we started living for the kingdom of God now? How might our world be different? As we get ready for communion this morning, I want to invite you just to wrestle with these five things, five statements, five implications. And if you didn't receive communion as you came in this morning and would like to take communion, just raise your hand and these amazing servants would love to serve you. Piece of bread, cup of juice that represents Jesus' body and blood which is shed for you. As we get ready for this meal that we have with Jesus, I want to invite you just to bow your heads and have a conversation with Jesus. And for some of you, your next step is the next step we talked about at the very beginning of the service that we are called to follow Him, be changed by Him, and that means dying and resurrecting with Him Believing, confessing, repenting, and being baptized into him. And if that is something that you believe you are called to take a next step in, would you please come talk to me? Because I'd love to hear what God's doing in your heart. Maybe it's getting connected to a group. Maybe it's engaging in ministry of some sort. Come talk to us, whatever next step it is that God's calling on you to take. But have a conversation with Jesus this morning. In the midst of the circumstances you find yourself in. And we'll take communion together here in a minute. Let's pray.